Welcome back to Silver on the Sage podcast. I'm Caitlin Lowe, your host. This is season one, episode 16 with Bucko Cowden. Bucko was a chaplain's kid in 1987, 1990, and 1994. He also did seven mountain treks in 1994 and two mountain treks in 1996. Bucko's staff experience began in 2002 as a PC at Miranda, 2003 PC at Crater Lake, 2004 CD at Poblano, 2005 CD at Miranda, 2006 CD at Bobien, and then in 2007 Bucko was a backcountry manager and he finished up in 2010 again as a backcountry manager. This is a really fun episode because uh, we get to start off from a a child's perspective, essentially, of of uh, kind of growing up at Philmont as a kiddo, following his dad around as a chaplain, um, and then just talk about Bucko as he transitioned into his staff experience, um, and and he also shares a lot of stories. He was known for being a great campfire storyteller. And so he shares several stories with us in this episode, which I personally really enjoy. Uh, I hope you all enjoy listening as well. And as always, thanks for being here. Let's hike on. Hey, Bucko. How's it going? Hi, Caitlin. How are you? I'm great. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited to chat with you today. I'm looking um, forward to it. <laughs> good. Yeah. <laughs> and you're coming to us from, uh, is it Westerville, Ohio? Westerville, Ohio. It's a suburb of Columbus. Awesome. Well, um, you have a really unique perspective on Philmont since you started going to Philmont when you were very young as a child. Um because your dad was a chaplain. So I won't tell the story for everybody, but um, let's just kick it off with how you um, ended up at Philmont. So I first went to Philmont in 1987. Um, I was had my seventh birthday out there. So I was six years old when I arrived at Philmont for the first time. And uh, my dad was a Protestant chaplain um, that summer. He was He did four summers overall as a Protestant chaplain. So 87, 90, 94, and then he came back in 2007 um, when I was on staff. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, he took us, we went out, my whole family, my brother and I, my mom. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, I don't think there's a better job at Philmont than being the chaplain's kid. Like that's the ultimate um, experience. I feel like I got the run of the ranch and uh, just... Everybody liked me being around. I, I very distinctly remember director of program in 1987 was a gentleman by the name of Dave Bates. And uh, he had a rule that you weren't allowed, like kids weren't allowed in the backcountry, like children were not allowed in the backcountry. And so like my dad just like still took us out in the backcountry. And I remember being at Poneal and like drinking root beer in the cantina and uh, just hanging out. Everybody's having a great time. And then all of a sudden like, Dave Bates is like 
10 7 at Poneal. And everyone's like, oh my, oh, we got to get, get him out of here. And they like snuck us up the back and we're like <laughs> above on the ridge, above the cantina. And I see my dad go out to talk to Dave Bates and then he leaves and we go back and enjoy the rest of our root beer. But yeah, um, just a lot of, we had a lot of, uh, of stuff like that where it's just, I don't know, running around being a kid at Philmont was pretty much the best experience. Yeah, I, I'm instantly jealous. Um, <laughs> that's like, Philmont's a great place to do a lot of things, but I can imagine growing up there. I mean, just how like influential and formative that would be on, on the future. You don't realize, I didn't realize it when I sure. was seven, you know, sure. like we did the PTC programs. Like I did all the Cub Scout stuff and, and we made homemade ice cream and peach cobbler and all that stuff. But yeah, you, you don't, I didn't realize it then, obviously. It was just, I don't know, it was just part of life. And and so it was, I think going back, like in 1990, when we went back, I was, I mean, I was still very much a child, but like we, my brother and I like were fixtures at the staff lounge. Um, and like we, we hung out at the staff lounge all the time. Like that's really all I remember doing about that summer. And like, there were some, I mean, they were, you know, young guys. They they were probably only 18 or 19, but I hung out with these guys that worked in like the trading post and the dining hall. And they like let me hang out with them, which, you know, is cool. And I, they were very, I remember a, like a new Public Enemy song or album came out and these guys were very excited about that. <laughs> um, but like there was... There was a ping pong tournament at the staff lounge and I loved playing ping pong. Like I played ping pong with these guys all the time. And uh, I signed up for this ping pong tournament and they were like, whoever was in charge of it was like, I don't know, this this is a kid, like this is not going to go well. Like, And so like I had to go get my dad to be like, no, please allow him to play in the ping pong tournament. So it was best two out of three and I won the first game. And like got mobbed by all of these guys. Like they're literally picking me up on I'm on their shoulders and they're they're like screaming and yelling. And then I lost the next two games and like I'm bawling, I'm crying. <laughs> and the guy that beat me is like, oh man, I had to beat this little nine-year-old kid. Sorry, pal. But it was okay. <laughs> so yeah, you you it sounds like you were kind of like, like you said, a like a Philmont. Um, like that that famous Philmont kid running around, like who does he belong to? And just, but he's just here, and let's just hang with him. Um, Absolutely. Did you? So I, I mean, I've always known you by Bucko. Did you get your nickname at Philmont, or is that like since you've been a little? No, that's a family name. Um, okay. It's a uh, I'm Russell the third. Okay. So my gr- my grandpa's Russ, and my dad is Rusty, and yeah. Happy Days was a was a a show when I was born and still so uh my dad picked me up apparently one day and he looked at me and in his richie cunningham voice said all right bucko what are we going to call you and apparently it just became like a joke and people like hey how's bucko doing and that's all i've known yeah Um, like that's what my family calls me i went to school as bucko and i was talking with slim uribe a couple weeks ago and we had a discussion about like having a nickname gives you an enormous enormous leg up in your film on career like yeah <laughs> it helps your stock you like you start at slightly higher place yeah <laughs> so but yeah it's a that's that's what i've been called my whole life yeah um were you so so kind of like 
growing up at the ranch um, and doing then seven mountain treks in 1994 and two mountain treks in 1996, were you just like super dying to be on staff and just couldn't wait to be old enough or? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, so like my first two summers, um, I did stuff with staff, but it was more like just being a kid. But in 1994, I did seven mountain treks and um, I worshiped the Rangers. Like I, there was nothing in the world that I wanted to be more than a Philmont Ranger. Um, mountain treks are, especially back then, I feel like it was a very different setup. So like in, in 1994, they, uh, they didn't have like mountain trek rangers. It was like a special duty that you got picked to be a mountain trek ranger. So it would have been, you know, not as prestigious as Rayado or something like that, but, um, but the, you didn't, it wasn't your job for the whole summer where you just took out mountain treks and they didn't have like planned itineraries. The two rangers would basically like, they would be chosen to be mountain trek rangers, get paired together. And then they say, what do you want to do? Well, let's do this. And then we'll go to this camp. And so they, they just made it up. And when you showed up on the Villa lawn, they would just stand up in their pairs and be like, Hey, um, you know, so-and-so, and we're going to Cypher's mine and we're going to clear Creek and we're going to miners park and, you know, come on, come, come with us. It's going to be the best mountain trek. So you just picked like there was no age group. There was no anything it was just like, what part of the ranch do you want to go see? And, uh, what do you like who looks like the coolest ranger so yeah. that's pretty much how i made my decisions and uh yeah it was i mean it was great like i think because it was so i don't want to say unstructured but just like it felt very just like loose for instance my very first mountain trek i don't remember where exactly we went for the first part of the trek but i definitely remember that we spent our last night at black mountain camp and like black mountain was, I ended up spending like going through there on three of the, my mountain treks. So it was my favorite backcountry camp at the time. Um, and part of the reason is because on the last day, so we wake up, maybe we had decided this the night before. I don't remember, but we were supposed to hike down the North Fork, Yuraka, like go through miners park and then get picked up on an afternoon bus to at lover's turnaround but our rate one of the rangers is like hey you know what'd be awesome is let's climb black mountain and then go past schaefer's and then go and like climb the tooth and hike down tooth ridge in the base camp and we're like yes this is i think this is a great and perfect idea so that's what we did and like it was a big crew and you know i don't people don't normally do the training for mountain treks i think that they do for um the the regular treks and so it took us a while i don't think we got onto the tooth until like six um because it took us a while just to go up black mountain so we didn't roll into base camp until like 10 30 and like i'm pretty sure my rangers got in a lot of trouble because like <laughs> they were looking for us like i think they were getting a saw ready um and the uh, yeah, we missed closing campfire. We, uh, there, there was a lot of stuff there, but like, that was just like the first of many things where it's just like, we just did stuff on mountain treks and 
but yeah, I used to know all of my rangers' names. I used to have the the pictures from all of my treks, and maybe they're down in my parents' basement somewhere. I just yeah. need to dig them up. But um, but yeah, like I man, I looked up to those guys so much. Um, especially we there were so they're like now there were two mountain trek coordinators, but. I don't know if this is how it always was or if this is just what they did, but like they took out treks. So one of them would stay in base camp and the other one would go out with a trek. And um, so their names were Mark Wright and Mike Dix. And like these two guys above all other people were like the absolute coolest guys that I had ever met or could imagine. Like yeah, <laughs> just everything. Oh man we got like such a behind the scenes look at the ranch. Sometimes I went on a mountain trek with Mike Dix and I want to say it was his like tent mate who was a, it, they were TRs back then, not RTs, but mm-hmm. um, I want to say his name was Sam. And we, the whole entire trek, we did not have tents. So, like we did not check tents out of services. We did not stay in tents in base camp. So another thing about mountain treks back then is like your first and last night was in base camp. So you're only spent four nights in the backcountry. But rather than like checking us into tent city, we just, they like got some foamies from somewhere and we slept outside of their tent in <laughs> K row of tent city. Like it, Tent City ended at Roquet. And so, like, we just meadow crashed in front of their tent. And then we hit the trail, and it was like a crazy trek. We did the first day was Zastro to Fish Camp. When we got to Fish Camp, like, we didn't have tents. And I don't know how they did this, but they're just like, hey, guys, we're going to be sleeping in these stables. And so we did. And it like thunderstormed that night. I was actually glad I wasn't in a tent. Yeah. Like, that would have been terrifying. But like, it was like the thunderstorm where it's like lightning and immediate thunder after that. And uh, I mean, it was just crazy. We got, we were summiting Mount Phillips. I think we had just summited and we were on our way down and we got like, it started golf balls, hail started falling on us. And like, I think that was the only time I ever saw Mike Dix, like actually lose his cool a little bit where it was like, that was the most dangerous situation we were probably in because it was another storm and like we don't have anything. We're like busting out like our dining fly and just like he's like get he's like get down and uh, so we're trying to be like just find cover because it's it, that was a painful little process and then so we're soaked and we're we're running into we went down in the ciphers and uh, we got to Thunder Ridge and like we were just beat like we were fried we're we're all um toast and uh there had been a a trail crew project at thunder ridge for like forever like it was for 10 years there was some huge conservation project at thunder ridge and uh they had like bear boxes for all their food so like we broke into their um their food supply and like everybody stole a like i had a box of apple jacks and so our rangers are like just take this like we're we're gonna be at cypher soon so i'm like eating my apple jacks on the way into cyphers and we had an adirondack to stay in but um but yeah it was just stuff like that like 
it wasn't it wasn't probably quite the same as a Rayado, but it to me it felt kind of like a little mini Rayado, a very condensed form of Rayado was with the stuff that some of us did. You know, we did yeah. night hikes, we did Yeah. I did lots of meadow crashing, like just it was it was an incredible experience. I couldn't and get that, enough of it. That summer when you did the seven mountain treks, how old were you? So I I turned 14. I was on a trek and um, I think I was with Mike Dix again. I think I was at Miners Park and I was, I, we didn't, we either got there too late in the day or it rained or something. So we couldn't actually go up and do rock climbing. So we were just on the climbing wall and I got to like the top of the wall and then they hung me up there and sang happy birthday to me. Awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a, Oh man, I wish I could find my pictures because like you can see the metamorphosis of like small, doughy, 13-year-old um, just kind of like sitting, squinting in the sun for those pictures, all hunched over, bad posture. And then kind of like in the last week, I'm all like straight backed. And I wore I wore the same clothes for like every trek. I I got to be like, a very little hardcore hiker. Yeah. Um, I, I very much admired um, all the rangers wore their gaiters all the time. So I went to the trading post and bought a pair of like super cheap, horrible looking gaiters, but I wanted to look like the rangers. Um, but yeah, like my t-shirt just got progressively dirtier because I never, I didn't take extra clothes. Like I really learned that I like, what I needed for four day, four nights in the backcountry was like a sweatshirt, like my Chuck Taylors and whatever toothbrush and a sleeping bag and a sleeping pad. And like, so I had like all kinds of room in my backpack because I didn't take anything. Yeah. And I wore the same <laughs> horrible, dirty clothes the entire time, washed them and then, you know, went back out the next week on the mountain trek. So it sounds like you, I mean, yeah, like you said, like a mini Rayado experience or just like, um, I mean, did you, did you, and it looks like you took like a little bit of a hiatus between 1996 and then did you not come back till 2002? Yeah. Yeah. Did you I, uh, just, were you just like dying? Did you miss it? So I, I don't know what, I think it just was, I didn't feel like I had the opportunity. I know at one point. I was going to do a Rayado. Like, I feel like I got signed up for Rayado, but then something happened and I had to do something for school or I, I don't yeah. remember. I like, I, I have no idea, but I ended up not going on that Rayado yeah. um, because I think in 1996, I probably would have done it, Yeah, but I was still too young. So my mom was a doctor as well. Like my dad was a chaplain. My mom was a doctor for, I don't even know how many summers she was there a lot. And while I was on staff too, um, uh, in 1996, I, that's the only time I ever summited Baldy. I never summited Baldy as a staff member. Um, it was my last mountain trek. It was my ninth mountain trek. And I was, they had changed it. So that summer they had designated mountain trek rangers and you were, you your itinerary was selected for you yeah <laughs> by just your age or yeah. whatever and so like i wasn't old enough to go into the 
the Summit Baldy trek, but the ranger who was going on that trek had been my ranger the week before, and he's he like is talking to the mountain trek coordinator. He's like, "Look, dude, this guy can handle it. Trust me." So, um, so like he got me onto that trek, and it's the only time I I summited Baldy. So, um, awesome. but getting back to your question, like it just kind of uh, I don't want to say I forgot about Philmont, but because I feel like my high school friends were very sick and tired of me talking about this place that they had absolutely no concept of and, you know, did yeah. not care about. But it just wasn't, it didn't seem like an option sure. um, to yeah. me. And so in a sense, yeah, I kind of did forget about it a little yeah. bit. Well, but, and then you came back in 2002 as a um, PC Miranda. My brother had worked out there in 2001, um, Dano. That was, it was right after he graduated high school. So so he calls up Doug Palmer and it's like, you know, mid-May, like late May and calls Doug and he's like, hey, Doug, my plans changed. What, is there, you know, anything going on at Philmont? And Doug is like, do you want to work at French Henry or do you want to work at Miranda? So somehow my dad is involved in this um, too, like maybe having a conference call. I don't know. But my, I'm working at a coffee shop. I'm living in my hometown at this time. I'm living with my parents. And I'm, I'm at a coffee shop. The phone rings. My dad's like, hey, I got Doug Palmer on the line, on the other line. Um, do you want to go work at Philmont? You have to answer right now. And I'm like, sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, and he's like, okay, do you want to work at Miranda or do you want to work at French Henry? And I'm like, well, I guess just let my brother choose. So my brother picked French Henry. And uh, I, w- I went to Miranda like 10 days later, um, <laughs> just drove out to Philmont. And yeah. uh, kind of the unorthodox way of, of uh, applying for Philmont. Yeah. But um, yeah, it worked out really well uh, for me. Like that was, uh, 2002 was obviously a crazy year. And I think more recent staff can really identify with everything that happened in 2002. We had the Ponyol Complex fire. So that changed a lot of plans. Um, we didn't make it up to Miranda until after the 4th of July, at least. I don't remember exactly what day we scattered, but um, it was a crazy summer. It was yeah. A, I remember um, we were doing a, like the interpretive training at Rayado. We were on the bus back, coming back from Rayado. So we're driving north and like, I very distinctly, like it was like, the eye of Sauron, like a spout of flame, like jumped over the ridge behind Cimarron. And it was just like the collective gasp from the bus because everyone, we were looking straight at it and it was like unmissable. Um, and so, yeah, that, and then I think that the fire started, like the lightning strike happened on the 30th. So that would have been the 31st or the 1st. By that time, it was like things were bad, and they were talking about evacuating Cimarron, and and, uh, and just nobody. I remember sitting on the backcountry warehouse porch like that week, and it's just a giant, giant smoke plume behind Tooth Ridge, um, like as big as Tooth Ridge. Like we had no idea what was going to happen, and you know if there was going to be Philmont that summer. Um, but luckily they, they made it work. So, yeah. Yeah. And you came, I feel like I read somewhere, um, 
Did you come? Did you work on the fire rehab? Yes. Okay, yeah. so you kind of got to go in and so that next year. Yeah. Um, so they did a, a really big fire rehab team in 2002. It was like the first try. They really perfected this stuff over the years. Um, but where they were making like trying to prevent the flooding because like Poneal flooded really bad that summer um, where it was just like the first monsoons came and it just like shot chocolate milk straight down the canyon. And like, yeah, they had a really big like, I don't know. 30 or 40 people on that first fire rehab team there the next fall when I did it. Um, it was a much smaller thing. I think there were only 10 or 12 of us, but like John and Randa were on that team and they were, we, uh, we spent a lot of time together. That was, those were good times. We didn't get to do like the, the first year we were all very disappointed because in 2002, that fire rehab team, like they had, uh, they got to do like chainsaw stuff and, and, uh, you know, they're cutting down trees and planting them in. And we basically just like spread straw. Like <laughs> We just went out and we built all kinds of like straw houses. We would, when we're loading up the straw into the trucks, um, you know, I remember once John and I made a giant fin, like it was uh, 20 feet high. I don't know how we drove this thing in the backcountry, but yeah, yeah. we just, we did ridiculous stuff like that. But it was, it was a fall of straw, but it was you you've done off seasons in at Belmont. Yeah. It's it's such a you really get to see a different side of the ranch um, in the in the off season. You really get to know the administration and they get to know you. Yeah. Um, and and just see people like it's really weird the first time you see Mark Anderson not wearing a class A uniform. You're like I am this is hard for me to like wrap my head around. I, this is not compute. Yeah. I need you to go put on the class A, please Mark right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> and then you, you went on and um, you worked at some awesome camps. I mean, you have a really awesome rap sheet there. Was there like, can you even pick a favorite summer or maybe like a one year where, you did something you you didn't think you'd be called upon to do. Um, I I can't pick a favorite summer. Like, yeah, <laughs> not possible. Um, so in two thousand two, the the North Country was closed until I don't remember when, but after the Fourth of July, still everybody got basically put into the South Country because they redirected all the itineraries into the South Country too. So it's like the South Country was crowded. Yeah, um, I can imagine. So my camp director was a guy by the name of Kevin Stickelman. And um, he was like, I don't want us to get all separated and uh, and get put into some, you know, wherever the fates will land us. So he and the camp director of Poblano, his name was Chris Arrington, cooked up this idea and sold it to Doug Palmer that what if he took their staffs and we gave us some like bow saws and um whatever maddox and stuff and we would hike around the south country and create defensible spaces around all of the cabins so that's what we did we just like hiked we would go out for nine days and we would stay at a camp for like two or three days um and just clear out like a six foot space around the cabin to 
make a defensible space. That, those are air quotes there for those listening to the podcast, because I don't know, this, this is probably a boondoggle, but it worked <laughs> out very much in my favor. Um, it was great. Like, Yeah, you guys became like a little, a mini like work crew. Yeah, we, yeah. we essentially were. And it was fun. Like I enjoyed it. And we got to meet, like I met so many people. Like I, I stayed in Miner's Park. I stayed at Crater Lake. Um, I don't know. It just felt that camaraderie. And like, I knew everybody. It was like my first year there. And I was like, I know everybody at this place. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, that was, that was a, a really cool little special duty. Um, and I think that it also just helped me really see the ranch. Like, you know, I'd been on a bunch of mountain treks, but um, I got to spend so much time with staff this time and just get to know people. So I think that was, um, and you got to, um, since you weren't at Miranda a lot that summer, you returned in 05 as the CD there. So you kind of did like, it was nice that you got to finally actually experience Miranda too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was, um, it was nice to be able to go back. I think that was the only camp that I worked at twice. So it was so, nice to go back and I had a pretty incredible staff at Miranda that summer. So would you oh. Do you want to comment at all on on the Miranda ghost stories? How do you feel about that? Uh, some weird stuff happened to me at Miranda, but I don't. That's the only thing I, I definitely remember. Um, I don't know if it's still like this, but the you know the beds were all kind of in that back corner, and so there was an open space in in the corner of the cabin where all like the heads of the bed were, and. Uh, I definitely woke up one night and like, like actually was like, ah, because although it's much louder than that, and my camp director, Kevin, this is when I was a PC and he was like, one of you jerks woke me up in the middle of the night. Cause you screamed. And I was like, yeah, that was me. Because like, I swear that I felt someone tapping me on the top of my head. And uh, yeah, so I don't, I never saw any, you know, um, young girls walking across the uh, the meadow or anything like that. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, weird stuff happens at Philmont. What yeah. can I say? I don't know if it's ghosts. I don't really, I never really super bought into those ghost stories. I heard, I heard stuff about weird things that happened at Cypher's Mine and sure, sure. French Henry, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you, um, did you, so I, forgive me, I can't remember. Did you play an instrument or just sing? Cause you worked at a lot of music camps too. Yeah, no, I, I did not. I played like I played the washboard. Nice. I banged on the washboard. Nice. Yeah. Um, and like I was I would play the harmonica, but I can't actually play the harmonica. I just kind of blew into it and sounds came out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was good enough to like kind of just make it like I get I never knew this, but um, you know, we'd play a song and if we people had like a C harmonica and a G harmonica and a D. I had no idea that this was a thing. So as long as we were playing in C, they would just hand me the C harmonica and just keep the rhythm and whatever. And, and we were, so we would do like jam stuff. That's as much as I ever did. But yeah. you know, I was, I was a singer and a storyteller um, more than, than anything else. I was rock star adjacent, not a true Philmont <laughs> rock star. Storytelling is a skill, though. So 
I mean, I, yeah, I was, I was pretty proud of my stories. I, I think, um, I was most well known for my piggy story. I have no idea if that story is still around. It was something I remembered as a camper and I had no idea. I kind of just did it the best I could, but it was like, I think I called it three bad men. So it was, um, Blackjack Ketchum, Charles Kennedy and Clay Allison. I think that I had some kind of story. I, I really don't remember how it went at all. Um, <laughs> but but Piggy was definitely my, that was what I was known for, if I was known for anything. Yeah. Well, I recall it. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I I myself as well was like kind of a, a, like a quote unquote, like fake musician at all the campfire camps I worked at. But I liked to sing. So, you know, you you pull it off. You make it happen at Philmont. Exactly. <laughs> um. Is there a position you would have wanted to work? I mean, you you did PC, camp director, and then you were a BCM for for two summers. Is there anything like you never you never did the ranger gig as much as you idolized them? Yeah, I mean, if if I had planned it out, you know, if I had been like I'm going to work at Philmont, um 99 would have been my first summer and uh if I had done it then, I would have signed up yeah. to be a ranger. Yeah. Um, but once I started in the backcountry, it just kind of like, you know, you just yeah. get, you, you get Hooked used to in. it. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, um, did, who did you, I mean, you talk about just idolizing, you know, your mountain trek rangers. Um, was there anyone in your backcountry experience that you really looked up to or, or um, just inspired you? Definitely. my Kevin Stickleman was my first camp director. And just an incredible guy. Um, the kind of person who is just going to do whatever he decides to do. I think I tried to be like him for the rest of my Philmont career, which he is, he was very taciturn. Like he, he didn't, he was not a super verbal guy and he was funny and like had a sense of humor, but he didn't, he was not like a smiley, jokey guy. And I feel like, especially as a backcountry manager, I tried to be like him. Um, but I was not, you know, you just got to be yourself, um, sure, sure. whatever you're going to do. But I tried to be like him. Ryan Hawk was my camp director at Crater Lake. He just like had a lot of trust in me. I don't know how else to say it. Like I, I, I remember we went to a, it was like a Rayado banquet or a trail crew banquet at the end of the year. It was like in August and we ran into Nancy Coleman, Nancy Stickleman now. And, uh, who was a backcountry manager. And she's like, Hey, um, what are both of you doing here at the same time? One of you should be at your camp. Like <laughs> who's running that place. So, um, he just put a lot of trust in me and like, he was the opposite of Kevin Stickleman, just like, like all energy and just like, yeah, we're going to campfire tonight. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, that was, it was a really good contrast, I think. Yeah, um, to have those two guys as camp director, and I think more though than anybody else, the I'll say this with the caveat that like more than anyone else, I I gotta say Doug Palmer and Mark Anderson. Like when you work at Philmont for as long as those two guys did, like you have such a tremendous impact on everything um, that happens. So you know it's that's an unfair answer to say those guys, but my backcountry manager, my first year as a CD was. Nate Lay. And I don't know if people know like 
this about Nate, but Nate Lay has forgotten more about Philmont than I will ever know. He has forgotten more about being a CD and a backcountry manager than I will ever know. Like, just an incredible person. I think he was... Apologies to everyone I worked with and all the other backcountry managers. Sorry, Dane. Sorry, Bob. Sorry, uh, you know, Gene Schnell. But Nate was the best backcountry manager, I think, that ever did it. Like, he just, he got it in a way and he was able to communicate in a way. I think that's it. Like, he had the love of it, but he could, like, help you, coach you. My respect for him is... um, very great. He was, if you don't realize how much Nate was like just a legend there, you need to go, people that are working there now, you need to go talk to Nate because he's got some stories. That's the, the backcountry manager role is, is a challenging role. I think it was challenging for me. Um, so yeah, when someone can really have success in that role for themselves, it's a huge success for the whole ranch, I think. I want to, um, I want to like stay on this. Let's yeah. talk about, let's talk about BCM yeah, for a little yeah. bit, right? Like right. what, what about it? What did you struggle with? I'm, I can give you a laundry list of the things <laughs> that I struggled with, but like, what was it? Why do you think everybody wants that job until then you get it? And you're like, what have I done? What am <laughs> yeah. I doing here? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I think everybody wants it because it's sort of that Philmont, like just the thing to do, the prestige, the like ladder. It's just the Absolutely. next next thing you do. For but sure. I, I think, you know, there's the driving privileges and the you get a unit number and a radio and it, it just feels romanticized. Um, and then for me, what was hard for me was what I loved about being a camp director was my staff members, they were right there. We had that rapport, that relationship. We were quote unquote a family. Um, and, and it was easy. It was, it was easy to be a camp director cause you were there. Right. And then, and then you were a backcountry manager. And when I did it, they, you know, like sectioned off the backcountry. So you had like South country or you had whatever, you know, they sure. gave you a portion. Um, so that was kind of hard for me because I got, I got a little like selfishly, you know, I, I wanted to, to know everybody and see everybody and coach everyone. Um, and, and the job is, you get pulled in so many directions, like, you know, for for the greater good, it's it's go help a a health lodge case here, or it's um, bring this crew some new bo- boots. So you really become a transportation yes. um, prior like priority yeah. over helping staff, and that was really hard for me to swallow. How many times I, did you? You're like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to Clear Creek today. And you and would never like, make it. <laughs> Let me stop off at Miner's Park and just drop off this mail. And it's like, whoops, there yep. goes your day. Yeah. I got to deal with, you know, whatever that's happening at Miner's Park. And and sorry, all you people who thought you were getting a ride to Clear Creek, trails right over there. Yes. You know? It's uh, it's a tricky job. And I, when I was a backcountry manager, I, I was with um, my partner in crime, Jada, day to day she was also a backcountry manager with me and i remember at one point towards the end of the summer she was like we just need two burrows or two horses like can we just do like a and she was serious she was like can we do a two or three overnight in the backcountry with our camps like stay the night at bobian and then hike over to crooked or ride over to crooked because otherwise there was no way to really 
impart any help. It felt like that. And that's I remember um, in 2010 when I was back in Shamandra, I had all the vol camps, or the VIA camps. Um, and I ran into like Mike Serio at Whiteman Vega or something. I don't remember where, but we, we're talking and, and I'm like, all right, I got to get out of here. I got to go back to base camp. And he's like, how come you guys never like spend the night in the backcountry? And I'm like, I, we just don't. A, even if I tried to, I would get, some kid would have to come off the trail like immediately and I would be the one who's going to do it. Um, but B, it was just like, it's not what you did. Um, I don't even know how to describe it. I feel like even when I was a backcountry manager, we didn't, like gas was really expensive. And there was kind of this thing where it wasn't explicitly stated, but I felt like kind of unspoken that you really shouldn't be taking two trips into the backcountry in one day. And so like even to go to a campfire, like load up a Suburban and go out to Bovian or go to Crater Lake or whatever, like it was kind of like you had to make it a very special occasion like to do that to, in order to justify it. Sure. So, I th- yeah. I think that's why Jada was so um, motivated to try to like get rid of the vehicle. <laughs> she wanted to like get us in the backcountry to stay for a long period of time or just an overnight so we could really talk to staff, talk to our camp directors, see how camp was working. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's, I don't think it's a bad idea at all. So I don't know. I, I know that Sean Murphy was a backcountry manager for quite a while recently. And I think he he did a lot of good stuff. So now I kind of want to get him on the show and maybe yeah, come full I, circle. But I feel like Ritter, Mike Ritterhouse was yes. really trying to angle okay. things to yep, he too. really wanted to change how we did it. And and it was very different from when I was backcountry manager in 07. And then when I came back in 10, like it had changed quite a bit. Um, and how we did camp director training and yeah, um, yeah. a lot of stuff. But, but yeah, I think it's, I never would have believed how physically tiring it is just to drive in the backcountry all day until I did it. And it's like, you were worn out from those backcountry roads. Yeah. Yes. I don't know how Gene Schnell does it or the chaplains. Yeah. It's, it's a commitment. Um, yeah. It's a challenging role. And um I think it's always improving. I hope everything's always improving in general in life and at Philmont. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it continues to evolve. I don't even know who's doing it this summer. I'm, you know, pretty removed, but um, I wish you the best if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very removed. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I will say I'm going to take this opportunity to say how much I've loved this podcast. And like, it took me a while to to listen to it. Like, I follow you on Instagram and and like I was getting the notifications and I'd look and I'd be like, I don't know who that is. Yeah, I don't yeah. know who that is. I don't, yeah. I don't know who any of these people are. And so it was Sarah Burgess was the episode that got me in. And then I, I went back and I worked with Kira. So I listened oh, yeah. to that. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm, I'm in, like I am on board with what's happening here. Um, but yeah. it's been really amazing. Even the people I didn't know, all the stories are so familiar it's the, we're all telling the same story here and it's the the people the names that are the only thing that are changing um so i think it's i think it's really great thanks Becco. So. it's a lot of fun it brings me a lot of joy to share it so thank you it means a lot yeah do you want to talk about um 
fill my romances. Oh boy. <laughs> I had a fill fling with three consecutive fish camp CDs. So <laughs> I think that's got to be a record or something. Yeah. Um, it, uh, they weren't not, not consecutive summers, but they ended up being three consecutive fish camp CDs. So, you know, I was, uh, I feel bad for all my fill things. I, I always say like, I was a, I was a jerk and in honesty, we could use some, you know, not some stronger, not podcast appropriate language to really kind of sum up how I feel like I was as a, as a boyfriend, but yeah, I just wasn't like, I was looking for myself at Philmont and I never quite was at a place where really I was going to be mature enough to like make a lasting relationship. Cause some of, some of the people that, that I went out with were exceptional people. And I'm sure that that could have worked out, and, but Bad timing, you know, whatever. There are some near misses, some people that I'm like, I would have liked to have gone out with them. But, yeah. no, no regrets. I, well, I mean, many, many regrets. <laughs> like, just in, that I'm such a jerk. But <laughs> but uh, they, they were all exceptional people. It's it's not, it, I think that's another thing, thing that can be romanticized about Philmont or Philmont relationships. It is a very romantic place to feel love and feel youthful love. But um, a lot of us are finding ourselves, whether we know it or not, at Philmont and we're, we're hopefully bettering ourselves. But, you know, those two things like typically clash. Um, so yeah. <laughs> my dad, I, I think my dad has done three Philmont marriages and and I, I want to say he's not at 100% as like, you know, they're all still intact. I think most of them are. Yeah. Um, but it does get romanticized like that. I Believe me, I wanted like that was something I was like trying to make it happen. Just didn't. So, yeah. Yeah. It's like everything. I mean, it, it ends up with the summer ends and then there's real life. And so you got to kind of confront those two things and. Um, even today, you know, I married my Phil Fling, but we're not the same people we were at Philmont. And so, you know, there's sometimes I have that nostalgia creep back in and, oh, I miss Jimmy Lowe when when he was Jimmy Lowe. But, you know, right. we were yeah. kids and running I, around the mountains. So another thing that's interesting about Philmont and Philmont people is um, you you have a memory of someone or a story of someone and that's how they live in your memory. They're right. always going to be that Jimmy Lowe or that whomever in your memory. But if you were to meet them today, of course, they're different. Of course, they've changed. Um, and I think that's a really interesting, I don't know, it's just interesting to to, to dissect that. Um, I know that you are known for storytelling. Do you want to share a story kind of as we come to an end, any of your just a favorite story or memory about Philmont that you want to share? All right. I'm going to throw out a few things. Okay. Um, Cause I, I will say like we touched on the, the, the campfire being part of the Philmont campfire tradition is that's something that I'm very proud of. And I look back with very fond memories again, like I got Phil famous or whatever, but it's because I was in the proximity of very talented people and I was just along for the ride. You know, we, um, in 2002, I don't know if they still played it. Did they still play mountain ball when you were out there? Yeah, yes, when I was there. Yeah. So we invented mountain ball in 2002. Okay. 
I did and not it, know that. Yeah. It was a it was kind of an answer to Logger Ball because you know the Poblano guys had been on this other defensible spaces crew and uh and we were like logger ball you know they cheat and whatever actually to like take this on a little tangent <laughs> i think that the history of logger ball started like when i was on staff in 2002 it was a directive from mark anderson thou shalt not ask crews to compact trash because it was like big hazing thing i definitely remember having to compact compact trash in the 90s so i think logger ball started because i don't know what year it was but the staff there would, all of the crews would bring their compacted trash before the campfire and the loggers would take a baseball bat or, you know, an ax handle or whatever and hit the trash and whichever crew's trash traveled the furthest and stayed together, they won logger ball. Oh. Somewhere along the line, it morphed into an actual baseball game because um, it was a baseball game when I was there at Poblano, but... Um, but that was the thing. But yeah, we, it had a reputation of like they they cheated, which is a hundred percent part of the show. It's the yeah yeah you're the Harlem Globetrotters, the loggers yeah. are the Harlem Globetrotters, the campers you're the Washington Generals. Sorry, your your role in that game is to lose. Um, but so we made mountain ball, and like it started. I think we were just we're waiting for crews to arrive. It was like a long time. I feel like that it took crews to actually start coming in so we were there for like a week and uh we had a matic handle and we were hitting rocks with it it's <laughs> into the meadow yeah and uh we were talking and i had said something like i'm a huge baseball fan i studied a lot of the history of it and i was like you know baseball has been around for a long time and it kind of morphed from like lots of different things and like before it kind of someone actually sat down and wrote down the rules of baseball but like lewis and clark played like a game of proto baseball with the, like nez Perce indians when they were on their trip and i was like so it's not out of the realm of possibility that like mountain men would have played some like proto baseball game and so we were like well what if they ran the bases backwards and what if there was an extra base and what if instead of like bases we planted posts and you could have as many people on the post and you didn't have to run them in order. And so we just came up with all of these ridiculous rules. So then we took a rock, we bought some string and like Kevin Stickelman went down to Shirley's in Cimarron yeah. <laughs> and got some leather and like I sewed a leather cover onto this ball of string with a rock in the middle. And that was the mountain ball. And it eventually turned into like straight mush. And then we had to make another one, but <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, we were yeah. we were very excited. I know the Heart of America Council, like in around Kansas City, it became a big thing. They, uh, you'd have to ask Tristan Wagner, but I'm pretty sure that Stickelman Field might still exist. I, I have no idea. But that's awesome. Yeah, that's that was, a good legacy, though. Yeah, that yeah. was. I have no idea if they still play it. Mark Anderson was kind of dubious about uh, mountain ball the whole time. I had. <laughs> I had a, one of the things was if you got, if you were holding the ball as a runner, you could pick up the ball and just like chuck it um, further away. But okay. if one of the fielders touched you while you were holding the ball, then you were out. And so we had this little thing where you would just, you would be on fourth post and it was like straight down the hill from the plate, um, home rock, I should say. 
and that all you could all you had to do was like tap the ball and it would roll down the hill so you would just run off of the post catch it turn around and just chuck it down the hill so it was like a little relay cheat and we we ran this move all the time we're doing this i like i grab the ball i turn around and this advisor like tackles me like straight up like runs like puts his shoulder into me and he separated his shoulder he had to come off the trail every time somebody got hurt a mountain ball we're like man mark anderson's gonna kill us and so i was down in base camp a few days later doing laundry and like i see this advisor in the laundry room and i'm like oh boy and like he saw me like we made eye contact so i was like oh great this guy's gonna be like you ruined my trek and thanks a lot but he came over and he's like oh man that was the best like your camp that was so much fun we loved it and i'm like awesome i'm yeah. <laughs> sorry that you're broken now but uh, i'm glad that you enjoyed it <laughs> what a good memory um it's always like the things you you, you don't think um are going to stand out that do sometimes to people or make the biggest difference, even if it ends up with them off the trail. One of my favorite memories. Well, did you work autumn adventure too in the off yeah. season? Yeah, I worked. Yeah. One fall, one winter. So I got cracked on autumn adventure, like actually cracked where I dropped off a crew and picked up a crew on the same day An autumn adventure. What? And <laughs> I was like, how is this? It was, I think, um, I think that it was Nate Lay's, hometown crew and like he had recommended me or something like I had been requested but I literally came in off the trail did some laundry and then like two hours later went and met my new crew um so yeah so that was that was an experience I don't know how many people get cracked on autumn adventure but it was a good crew I had a good time I and no regrets about that yeah um we had a a PSA trek came through Miranda in 2005 and we had like We'd already been delivered our um, Phil Fiesta food, but we decided that we weren't going to have a Phil Fiesta. We're like, we're just going to eat <laughs> all of the food ourselves and just yeah. make it last. Um, so, so, but one day this PSA truck rolls through and it was like entirely people that worked in the nineties. So they, they show up and, and I'm like, look, you guys were the reason why. I love Philmont, like even not specifically you, but you worked in that era that I fell in love with Philmont. And uh, you're going to come eat with us. Like we're going to cook our filthy ass of food and you guys are going to eat with us. They were like, cool. So we're doing that. But it was like, if you've seen like The Hobbit or read The Hobbit, like that was just the start. It was like one by one or, you know, two by two, like people just kept showing up and I would, and I'm just like, okay, yeah, Hey, we're cooking up all this food. Don't worry. So we ended up feeding like 25 or 30 people. Like we had a filthy fiesta that night, completely impromptu. At some point I'm like, man, what are we going to eat tomorrow? Because like <laughs> all, our steaks are gone. All our chicken is gone. Like uh, guys, we're eating, like we're going to have to go and take these black powder rifles out and do some illegal stuff here. Um, I was very glad to meet those guys. All right, one, two, I'm going to tell you two more stories. Yeah, go for it. So being at Crater Lake, I very, very distinct memory of being like on the porch at Crater, talking to one of my coworkers. And I'm like, you know, I wonder if we're ever going to meet our ranger liaison this year. Like we had one last year at Miranda, but we we never saw him. And uh, I, I wonder if it'll be like that this year, if it's like whatever. And 
seconds later. Like it, it felt like instantly this person rolls up. <laughs> Looked like he had swam through Crater Lake to like he is drenched, drenched in sweat and rolls up onto the porch, sticks out his hand. He's like, hi, I'm Chris Sawyer. Nice to meet you. I'm your ranger liaison. And that was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Like he was the seventh member of the Crater Lake staff that year. Um, I definitely got on the radio. It was, you know, like August 16th or something. And it was me and one other guy at Crater Lake. And I'm like, man, we need some help to do the campfire. So I like called the ranger office and I'm like, please come. Can you give Chris Sawyer a message that he needs to like come to Crater Lake and begin our campfire tonight and he did so i think anybody who's worked at Philmont for like the past 20 years knows exactly like what what yes. the chris sawyer package is like oh, yes. amazing <laughs> human being so yes um all right i'm gonna i'm gonna stop talking this is my last story i think my most meaningful Philmont experience that i had um and it's it's from when i was a camper but we were staying at old camp um, which is now Metcalf Station. Is that right? Yes, I believe so. Um, so, you know, I'm sure Metcalf Station is really cool, but I will never, like, I will always love Old Camp for this. But um, so we stayed at Old Camp and maybe that was actually the beginning of uh, where Mountain Ball was born because like we were the only crew there. We found this big stick and we wrapped duct tape around a rock and we played this game of baseball um, and I, I really idolized um, my mountain trek ranger. His name was Stephen Chafee. Um, he was the one who got me onto the the Baldy trek the next week. And uh, he loved baseball, so we talked about that. We played this game of baseball, and it like rained in the afternoon. And I was reading the Lord of the Rings at the time. I think I was reading the Two Towers. And again, we were talking about that. And uh, in the evening, like at sunset, getting on towards sunset, we climbed up. So it would have been the north side of the canyon. And I don't think we were like at the at the top of the ridge, but like there was a little outcropping of rock or something. And they had us do like, you'd go off with a person and it's like, all right, close your eyes and open your eyes for five seconds and then close your eyes. And it's like taking a mental picture. And like that worked because I have never forgotten that. I was sitting on that ridge at sunset, watching the North Poneal fill up with gold and it was like a transcendent experience in my life like a moment of enlightenment in the you know I don't think I'm an enlightened person but I was in a true state of being at that time and like I've never forgotten that that was a huge moment in my life and something that um it's like maybe my most cherished Philmont memory yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, thank you for sharing those stories. I love I love stories. I'm glad you told a bunch. So, um, I think yeah, I think we've hit on almost everything. Do you want to jump down to final thoughts, nominations? Yeah, I'm sure this is like super hard for you because like I am impressed impressed with like the how you have not just been like got all your best friends to be on the podcast like the whole time because that's what I would have done so like I'm very I'm very impressed that you like got different departments and and uh you know different eras um so yeah I'm trying 
Thanks. <laughs> You're doing a good job. All right. Here's some, here's some names that I'm going to throw at you. So going back to the 80s, there was a guy who worked in activities. His name was Todd Conklin. And he was like, I, I'm going to say that like he's making reaction sheets highlight of the trek for the closing campfire. Okay. Um, so yeah. I, I think he was the director. I don't know if he was the director, but he worked in activities for a long time. Um, this camp director whose name was Chris Werhane, like this guy looked like a mountain man. Um, this was a big thing with my dad. Um, like Poblano was kind of always his favorite camp. Um, he, my dad was definitely like the young, cool chaplain. Um, his first few summers, I think he had a different experience like in 2007. Um, but so he, he got to hang out with, um, the Poblano guys. I definitely had a Viking feast at Poblano and, um, when I was a child and it was like, my dad is like, look, maybe let's not tell your mom about this. <laughs> we get back to base camp. And we're like, mom, we had a Viking feast. Um, so, um, but this guy looked like a mountain man, the beard, like very yeah. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think Mike Dix or Mark Wright, you know, I think every era looks back. You think that like now the future of Philmont is like sanitized. And uh, it was much more hardcore and, you know, whatever when you were there. Um, but I feel like that's how it was with those Rangers. So, yeah, Mike Dix, Mark Wright. I don't even know. Like, there's too many to... I would say John Selly would be good, but I don't know if you've ever heard John Selly tell a story. You're you're probably only going to get one, and then two hours later, the podcast is going to have to be over, and he's still <laughs> going to be in the middle of that, that one story. But I, I love John Selly. I don't know, Dave Kopsa. Yeah, yeah. Or Dale Kipso, I should say. Dale yeah. Kipso, yeah. Dale Kipso. That's a that's a legacy that I'm proud of naming him Dale Kipso. Um, <laughs> Ashley Pagnata, um, Josh Gaiman, Tofe White. I think Tofe White would be an excellent one because I think Tofe might be the only person who worked every summer that the Double H existed. I think Tofe worked all of them. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I loved working with Tofe. He's a great guy. Yeah. I think... Um, I think Todd Zinn mentioned J. Tel Rav, the Jewish rabbi in 2006. I had a really great J. Tel Rav experience where he invited me to like, I don't think it was the Jewish service, but as a chaplain kid, I had an embarrassing record of like attending um, <laughs> Philmont, you know, services. I did yeah. not do it very often, but um, he like invited me to, maybe it was something after it. And I was like, Jay, I'm, I don't know how to tell you this. I'm not Jewish. And he's like, don't worry, it doesn't matter. You just come and we're going to have some fellowship. And like, it was at a time when I was really struggling to find the thing to say to close the campfire at Bobian. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, there's the thing, it's like, I feel like Ryan Hawk used to tell the story. It's like, you pick up the nuggets and, and like, there were some that were kind of like passed down and it felt like a little bit of a retread. And I was like, I need something that is like from me and needs to be personal and like, so I go to this fellowship with J. Tel Rav and like it fully formed, came into my brain. And I like found the thing that I used to close the Bobian campfire, which was basically like my dad came to Philmont in 1967 and uh, they, Philmont was very different back then. Like they didn't have itineraries the same way and, and uh, the tents didn't have floors. Um, so you would like just have a ground cloth under there and it rained that night and like 
rain drained at Bolian. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you're you're at a pretty high elevation and uh the staff the next morning had told them it got down to like 33 or something like that. So like there's a river running through their tent. They were wrapped up. He and his tent mate, who was his best friend, are like wrapped up in their ground cloth. And my dad's tent mate is like, looks over at my dad and he's like, Rusty, this is hell. And my dad is like, I'm pretty sure hell is a lot warmer than this. And, uh, 20 years later, of course, he couldn't get enough and just like brought the whole family out to like that experience was so bad that he just wanted more of it. And so that was kind of my, you know, my closing messages. It's the bad times. This, your podcast is filled. Nobody is like, everybody talks about all the friends that they've made and everything, but like the memories of Philmont are from struggle. And like, that is what, that is what makes it what it is. And, uh, so yeah, that was my closing campfire story. And it all came from attending, like that moment of inspiration was from attending a Jewish chaplain service. So, you know, that's that's the beauty of Philmont. Yeah. Uh, you never know where that stuff's going to come from. I don't know. I can't, this is going to put a pin on this, like how much a Philmont means to me. But I said, I think I said this during CD training in 2010, but I found this quote from, Ralph Waldo Emerson is from his essay, Nature. It goes, if the stars should appear one night in a thousand years, how would men believe and adore and preserve for many generations the remembrance of the city of God, which had been shown? But every night come out these envoys of beauty and light the universe with their admonishing smile. I would, that to me is Philmont, like, as a camper, you go and you have this experience that is very rare and that you're going to remember for the rest of your life. But as staff, like you live in the stars, you are the stars. And that is, that's why it's the best. That's why I love it. I love that. Can't thank you enough for your stories, all your, I just think you have such a cool experience um, starting out as a kid and Everything you've shared with us today really, um, I don't know, just it, it brings a bunch of memories back for me. So um, thank you. Next next year is going to be my 20-year reunion, so maybe a, an autumn adventure. You guys have grandpa and grandma come and stay with the kids, and we'll all go out to Miranda and do some day hikes from there. That's, that's my goal. And some mountain ball. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you again for your time today. And um, it's yeah. A- absolute pleasure to talk to you awesome i love the podcast i am uh i i'm i can't wait to hear the music to the outro because like um it's it's amazing it's a film on campfire like it's just yeah it's 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 fantastic thank you it's been a it's been a pleasure awesome thank you so much (laughs) 